Welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast. If you love tennis and want to improve your game, this podcast is for you. Whether it's technique, strategy, equipment, or the mental game, tennis professional Ian Westerman is here to make you a better player. And now, here's Ian. Welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. Today's episode of the Essential Tennis Podcast is brought to you by SomersetSportsPerformance.com and also TennisTours.com. Today on the show, it's just going to be myself. I've had guests with me on the show talking about specific topics the last couple of weeks. Today, I'm going to be catching up on a bunch of listener questions that I haven't gotten to yet. And I'm just going to get through those quickly and try to give you guys some good information. They're all listener questions submitted by those of you who listen to the show. And we're going to be covering topics such as how much to think about, how much uh, to ponder or keep consciously in your mind during your practice play. We're also going to be talking about racket head speed, getting your weight into a shot, and also kick serve if we have time. So we're just going to be kind of going through a grab bag of questions here. And hopefully you guys enjoy the show. Real quickly, before we get to the questions, I'm going to be announcing the winner of a free tennis racket at the end of this show. And everybody who bought a t-shirt, an Essential Tennis t-shirt from EssentialTennis.com was put into a drawing that I just did for three different prizes. So listen at the end of the show when I announce who wins each of the prizes. So for now, let's get down to business and start answering some questions. Sit back, relax, and get ready for some great tennis instruction. And now it's time for Essential Tennis Q&A. All right, let's get started with our first topic on today's episode of the Essential Tennis Podcast. And it comes to us from Stephen, who sent me an email not too long ago, and he has a question about how many things to think about during a practice session. He wrote to me and said, how many items are too much to be working on in practice? I'm a 4.0 level player and pretty consciously competent of my strokes and also know when I see a good stroke, but I have been watching my game simmer at a low level for the past month or two. My question is on how many pieces of the game should I be working on? I know that I could be doing a better job of watching the ball come off my strings, lifting more with my legs, slowing down my swing to be more controlled when I hit the ball, and also getting my core turned sooner with the aid of my guiding arm on both my backhand and my forehand. Is this too many items to be working on during a practice? Maybe this is a good podcast topic. Thanks again for the great podcast. Stephen, that's a great question. And... One that hopefully I can give you some insight on. Uh, you're on the right track here, but um, I'm going to give you kind of more of an action plan. And uh, what Stephen is talking about when he says consciously competent, um, he's referring to a, a phase of play or a phase of learning, a skill that I've written about in the Essential Tennis blog, uh, which is a very important thing to understand, and it relates directly to Stephen's question. Um, the four phases of learning any specific skill are, first of all, being unconsciously incompetent, meaning you don't really have any uh, knowledge, you don't have any uh, real information about the skill at hand, and you're not good at it. You're unconsciously incompetent. Uh, Phase number two is being consciously incompetent, 
meaning that you've sought out some information and now you have some knowledge about tennis or whatever other skill we're talking about, but you're still not very good at it. You're still not able to really execute at a high level or really you know, any level at all. Uh, phase number three is the, the phase that Steven is in and probably most of you listeners out there are in, and that is being consciously competent, meaning that you're, you're thinking about the process, you have information, probably some good information, you've sought out uh, some knowledge and some wisdom from other sources, um, and so it's something that you're conscious of, and you're also competent to a certain degree. You're, you're relatively good at what you're doing as well. So you have the information, and you're able to execute it. And the ultimate for, for any skill, whether it be an athletic skill or playing an instrument or you know doing anything, really, uh, the ultimate is unconsciously competent, meaning that you've done it enough times that not only are you good at it, but you don't even have to think about it anymore. It's just a habit. It's just second nature. And it's something that you just go out and do. And that's difficult to get to that phase. Uh, but Stephen, I'm, I'm going to give you some tips here that hopefully will help you practice to specifically get to that phase of play where these four things that you're working on can hopefully become unconscious at some point. And that should be a goal of yours to be able to execute all of those things without even having to think about it anymore. When you watch the pros on TV or any other high-level players, they're, for the most part, on autopilot. Uh, as far as their physical skills are concerned, you know, 97% of the time, they're on autopilot. They're not out there thinking about how they're going to execute a certain swing. What they are probably conscious of is strategy. They're probably uh, thinking in between points about how they're going to continue to try to beat their opponent but they're not thinking about how to pronate on their serve. <laughs> or they're not thinking about uh, lifting more with their legs uh, because it's something that they've done thousands of times and it's a pattern and it's a, a habit that they've ingrained into their mind. So um, let's get down to uh, Stephen's question here specifically. All four of those things that you listed, Stephen, are all great things to keep in mind, but I only want you to focus really on one at a time consciously. I don't want you to attempt to consciously think about all four because it's not really possible. And we'll, I'll get to that in just a little bit here. Instead of trying to think about all four actively, I want you to schedule time. I want you to set aside a time to focus on one at a time for 10 or 15 minute blocks. Or you could even spend an entire practice session working on just one of these skills. But my main point is going to be to you during my answer here that I want you to take one of those skills at a time and really focus your mental efforts towards that one skill and put the others on the back burner. It's not that you can't still be aware of them and uh, you know still notice when you miss a ball into the net, let's say, because you didn't lift enough with your legs, uh, for example. Then yes, I want you to be aware of that and remind yourself, all right, well, I, I missed that ball because... Uh, my legs were straight the whole time. I didn't get enough lift in order to get it over the top of the net. Uh, and so I'm going to have to do a better job of that. But rather than trying to think about all four at once, I just want you to pick one for a certain period of time and be able to focus on it. And the idea, as I stated a second ago, is to eventually do a great job at all of them automatically, which is consciously 
competent, I'm sorry, uh, unconsciously competent. I want you to be able to do all of them automatically without having to think about it, but do it well. And that's only going to happen through thoughtful and, pur- and purposeful repetition. You need to be able to spend time on each of these and purposefully do a good job of it over and over and over so that it can become a habit eventually. Uh, consciously trying to work on four things at once is going to spread your mind out too thin and it's going to distract you. Because chances are, you know, when you have four things in your mind like that and four things that you don't already do particularly well automatically, uh, the chances of executing all four of them at once on the same swing correctly, uh, the chances of doing all of them are very, very low. <laughs> and so what's going to happen if you try to execute all four at once correctly, uh, you're going to end up with too many thoughts in your head, you're going to ultimately probably perform worse because you're going to be distracted while trying to control all those variables at the same time. And it's not actually possible for the brain to think actively about two things at the same time. What you what would be maybe possible is uh, to spend a half a second thinking about each one as the ball is on its way to you and try to uh, kind of micromanage and control all of those different parts of the swing just before the ball gets there and then try to execute and activate all of those four swing thoughts all before the ball gets there. And that's going to be extremely difficult and something I would not recommend that you that you try to do. Now, what you could do, however, is work on all four of them during the same practice session by going into practice with some kind of a plan. How will you spend your time today on the practice court? I want you to actually map it out. Schedule what you're going to work on and focus on. And if you're going to set aside an hour for practice, what you could do is um, schedule your time 15 minutes for each of those four things. Just work on your ground strokes that day, All, all those four things uh, related to your ground strokes, lifting with your legs, watching the ball better, um, slowing your swing down a little bit more to control your swing, getting your core turned a little bit sooner. All those things are related to ground strokes. So as an example, you could do uh, an hour practice session on ground strokes and focus on all four of those things 15 minutes at a time for each of them and not worry about the other three while you're working on one of them. And that's going to be kind of the key there because I don't want your mind to keep on wandering from thin to thin to thin and have a different focus every 20 seconds because that's not going to be as productive of practice for you as if you were to take one thing and really focus on it and really try to get it nailed down to where it becomes unconsciously competent and you can just make it a habit. Trying to make four things at once be a habit all at the same time is too tough. That's not the way I want you to go about your practice time. You're going to be better off taking one thing at a time and really focusing on that. So take each individual skill that you want to improve and focus on and just focus on that with intensity over some period of time. And hopefully uh, within a certain number of practice sessions, you start to do maybe one of those things unconsciously. And great, so you can check that off your list. And and yes, it'll probably come up from time to time afterwards, and you'll have to remind yourself briefly. But the idea here is to make these automatic at some point so that you don't have to think about it anymore, and then you can move on to the next thing. Um, And hopefully 
six months from now, all four of these things will be automatic, Stephen, and you'll be able to to bring up a, another list of four things, and you can go from uh, from skill to skill in this fashion and make each of these skills unconsciously competent. That's ultimately our goal. So, Stephen, hopefully that answers your question, and that's a very good question, by the way. Um, I've never really gotten a question. Um, not even close to that. Uh, I, I'm really happy that you're so aware of what's going on. You're aware of your of your game and how you're working on it. And it sounds like you're really focused and dedicated to improving your strokes. Uh, so hopefully this has helped. Uh, this is of help to you. Um, so Stephen, send me an email and let me know if this makes sense and uh, let me know how your progress is coming. And I'd love to uh, hear how you're doing. Thanks very much, Stephen, and good luck. Okay, before we get on to our next topic, I want to tell you guys briefly about one of the sponsors of the Essential Tennis Podcast, one of the uh, great people that kind of make this show possible and help support me, which I very much appreciate. And that company is SomersetSportsPerformance.com, which has an online fitness training and nutrition aid program. You can fill in information about yourself and get experts guidance uh, in your in your fitness, uh, in your workouts, and also in your uh, nutrition and sports medicine. If you need any help, they're there to help you out. And you get a daily workout guide along with uh, videos demonstrating correct technique on whatever exercises you might be working on. And you also get um, daily eating plans along with recipes and grocery lists. So they really give you everything that you need to that you need in order to get in great shape. And it all starts at under ten dollars a month, nine ninety nine per month, uh, to be able to get really a complete fitness and nutrition um, plan, which is an excellent value. So go check out SomersetSportsPerformance.com, and I thank them very much for their support of the Essential Tennis Podcast. And next up, we've got a couple of questions from Jack R who is writing to us from Montreal, and he's a 4.5 level player. Jack is very, very active in his uh, local club and does a lot of volunteer work as far as programming is concerned and uh, promotion of tennis at his tennis facility. And uh, he just signed up for the forums at EssentialTennis.com as well. He's a very, very enthusiastic tennis fan and student of the game. And uh, I'm happy to answer some questions for you, Jack. I'm going to answer two of them here, and then we're going to have a third question about a kick serve that hopefully we'll get to as well. Uh, so let's kick things off with a question having to do with racket head speed and acceleration of the racket. He says, hi, Ian. I often hear pros in tennis videos talk either about racket speed or acceleration as being a key element for adding more power or spin to the ball. Remembering my high school math, force equals mass times acceleration. It would seem that acceleration is important, am I right? I.e. take two swings, each with the same mass behind it, and both are moving at the same speed at the point of contact with the tennis ball, but one is moving at a constant speed while the other is accelerating. Won't the accelerating racket have much more potential for power and spin? Yes, Jack, I, I agree with your hypothesis and uh, way to take the uh, the physics uh, the physics equation there, yeah, that's a very good observation and something that may seem like it's common sense, but it, listeners out there, if you guys are a 3.0 player or a 3.5 level player, 
and you want to move up in level, this is something that's very, very important to understand. I spend a lot of my time as a tennis teacher, uh, I'd spend a lot of time with my students trying to get them to lengthen their swings. One of my definitely top five areas that amateur tennis players can improve on in general is the length of their swing. And very oftentimes, amateur players actually decelerate their racket moving into the point of contact. There's kind of a tension there and like a, you know, kind of a bracing for impact rather than moving the racket smoothly through the point of contact or even accelerating the racket through the point of contact. And yes, given the choice between those three, Jack, um, you didn't mention the third one, which is decelerating the racket. I mean, that's obvious that that's not going to help you hit an effective tennis shot. But given the choice between the three, deceleration of the tennis racket at the point of contact or anywhere around the point of contact, um, a smooth, consistent speed through the point of contact, or acceleration of the racket through the point of contact, um, accelerating the racket at a greater speed as you make contact is going to give you by far the most potential for power in spin. And that's a very good observation, Jack. The, the, the only way that's possible is to be relaxed, have a loose grip with the racket, and to just have a, a good smooth motion and a good length of swing, uh, whether we're talking about ground strokes or a serve or a lob, um, not so much with volleys, but to a certain extent volleys as well. But more, most so on ground strokes and serves, this really pertains a lot. Um, and so to improve your game, guys, to improve your ground strokes, to improve your serve, the racket should be accelerating through the point of contact. And that's only possible with a good relaxed body with relaxed muscles. When I teach, it's very typically I, I hit with just a continental grip. Um, I do switch my grip a little bit on my backhand side uh, to close the face a little bit, a little bit more towards Eastern backhand grip. But what I teach, and I'm just trying to give my, my students repetition in practice, usually what I'm doing is hitting at a constant speed through the point of contact. I'm just trying to give them a, a similar ball over and over usually uh, to be able to give them repetition and practice on a, on a specific skill. I'm um, trying to give them um, some rhythm and a consistent shot uh, back and forth. And so very typically what I'm doing when, I, when I'm hitting with a student is just moving my racket at a steady speed throughout the entire swing. And this pertains mostly to a ground stroke, as I mentioned a second ago. However, when I'm competing at a 5.0 level or, or thereabouts, I am accelerating my racket uh, dramatically through the point of contact whenever possible. I want the racket moving as quickly as I can while still maintaining control through the point of contact because the, the faster the racket is moving, the more power and the more spin I can put on the ball, and therefore the more I can challenge my opponents. But if you go and watch amateur tennis at a park or at a local uh, tennis facility, a club, you'll very often see very compact and tight-looking swings, and that's going to hold you back. So, Jack, good uh, good observation there, and hopefully I expanded on that enough to, uh, to answer your question. Next up, uh, I'm going to answer his question about weight of a shot. And Jack wrote and said, that same formula also seems to indicate that the more mass behind, being behind a shot, the more force or power that there will be. Now, it seems to me that the big muscles of the body, the legs, the core, the shoulders, all add 
to the racket acceleration, but also to the mass of the shot. When I have time to properly set up, I try to swing in such a way that when I hit my forehand and my that when I hit my forehand and my swinging arm is extending out in such a way that it is almost in line with my shoulders and my body so that I'm getting the weight of my body behind the stroke. Am I right? I.e. The, the weight of the body behind the stroke is contributing to the weight of the shot, i.e. and so adds the resistance when the ball comes and actually hits the racket. So what Jack is asking is, um, is it correct that the more mass of your body, the, the bigger parts of your body, um, do those actually add to the weight or the mass in that equation that he talked about? Force equals mass times acceleration. Uh, his, the first part of, or his first question had to do with acceleration. Um, is accelerating the racket through the point of contact better than just maintaining speed? And the answer to that is yes, absolutely. The other part of the force equation is mass. And so now his question is, uh, if I get more mass, meaning bigger parts of my body working and active through the point of contact, will that also give me more force or more power, as is typically referred to in tennis? And the answer there is also yes. The more of your body that you can get moving and actively uh, swinging, as it were, through the point of contact, the more easily you're going to be creating power and spin and depth and everything that makes a good tennis shot. And once again, this comes down to being relaxed and also just having good technique in general. And uh, you very uh, adeptly uh, pointed out the three kind of biggest parts of the body that can be used in a tennis stroke, uh, and that is your legs, your core, and your shoulders. Those are the, the three biggest parts of our body. And, it, and unfortunately, uh, when you go and watch lower-level players, you see them predominantly using their arm. And they'll talk about things like wrist snap. <laughs> and wrist snap, uh, that phrase is a big pet peeve of mine and something that um, it seems like so many tennis enthusiasts pay a lot of attention to and uh, pay a lot of credence to. Uh, but when you go and watch them play and they're trying to, to arm the ball and use, uh, use their arm to accelerate the racket, you can get to a certain level doing that. But when you watch the pros play, they're throwing everything they have into the point of contact. Uh, their entire body is being used. There's not a major muscle group that's not being used, assuming that they're in balance. Obviously, sometimes when they're on the defense, it's not possible to get your body in such a position that you can take full advantage of your entire body and the, the large parts of your body. But whenever it's possible, you want to be in balance so that you can use the big parts of your body and get the mass of your body behind the ball. So... Using that formula, if we can have a long swing, a long relaxed swing, uh, which is the acceleration part, if we can have a relaxed swing, have a good length of swing, and across that, that long path, if we can accelerate the racket, not only up to the, up, up to the ball, up to the point of contact, but through the point of contact, if we can do that, we'll create more power and spin. If we can add to that, getting our body in balance, and using our core to rotate uh, smoothly and longly through the point of contact, if we can uh, rotate our shoulders, and if we can push with our legs, uh, the, the three biggest parts of our body, the, the most muscular parts of our body, if we can not only have the length of swing and the acceleration, but also get those big parts of the body working and behind the ball, as Jack put it, which I think is a great way of putting it, 
uh, if we can combine all of those things together, we can really start to hit a high level shot. And um, these are these are the fundamentals. These are the essentials of hitting a powerful shot, whether it be a ground stroke or a serve. Those are the two main ones that really use all of these things that we're talking about. Um, and the, the same principles apply to every shot in tennis, but ground strokes and serves are the ones where we're really trying to put the most power and spin on the ball. Uh, and so that's where this really applies. So Jack, hopefully uh, I answered those two questions. Um, those are good discussion points. And uh, I could go really in depth with all of this and talk about specifics, meaning exactly in what direction or how the core turns and rotates or uh, the timing of the use of the legs and how we use the legs uh, to, to go down and push up on ground strokes or serves. I'm not going to get into that, but th these are the things I just talked about are, are just generalities. Um, and it's a good place to start to really understand how the body needs to be used in order to really become a good tennis player. All right, we've got one more quick question from Jack. But first, I want to tell you guys about a new sponsor of the Essential Tennis Podcast, which I'm excited about, and that is TennisTours.com. They specialize in tennis travel and specifically going to professional events and tournaments and being a spectator. And they sell packages including uh, actual tickets and they, they sell you know the best seats in the house and all the way uh, on up through different price ranges of tickets. And they sell packages along with uh, hotel stays. And this is something that they've been doing for a long time, since 1987. And so they are experts in going to view professional tennis and making it you know, an enjoyable trip, making it an overall enjoyable experience and being able to uh, enjoy your surroundings and have them take care of everything for you from the tickets to the uh, accommodations, etc. Now, if you go and order a, uh, a ticket package or a travel package and use the promotional code, code essential, you will receive a discount off your order. So go check them out. Use the code essential to receive a discount off of the next tournament that you go to, uh, tickets or hotel stay, etc. So go check them out and I appreciate their support. And uh, yeah, go look at their website today. It's tennistours.com. I thank them for their support. All right, lastly here, we've got one quick question from Jack uh, to finish up his uh, email to me, and this has to do with a kick serve. He says, I have a friend who tells me that on a true kick serve for a righty, the ball is struck from 6 o'clock to 12 o'clock, and he's talking about um, the hands on a face, or the face of a clock, rather, 6 o'clock being the very bottom, and that would be the bottom of the ball as you're looking at it from behind and moving upwards to 12 o'clock. He says, uh, for a righty, his friend says the ball is struck from 6 to 12, so directly vertical, or even 5 to 11, uh, meaning uh, a righty swinging kind of from right to left uh, to hit a kick serve. Can this be true? I always figured that the, most, uh, that the most one could do was around 7 to 1. I'm not talking about the American twist serve, um, a serve that I'll do about once a month that gets the ball curving the opposite side, I'm sorry, the opposite direction of slice. Uh, well, Jack, I, I agree with you. Um, uh, a kick serve for a righty is more, is much more so from seven o'clock to one o'clock. So moving a little bit from left to right across the ball, but predominantly 
from down to up. It's pre- predominantly a vertical path, uh, which is what creates that jump up into the air, the, the kick off the court. But it does have a little bit of slice on it as well. And that's what creates the uh, distinct ball path on a kick serve. A, uh, a righty's kick serve uh, will go up into the air and curve down sharply, and it will dip from right to left as uh, the server is looking at the ball. The ball will not only dip downwards into the court very quickly if struck well, but it will uh, curve from right to left, kick off the court upwards, and out to the right again. So it'll curve to the left as it comes down into the service box and then kick out again to the right. That is a kick serve, and it will also kick up into the air. So it goes up into the right, and that's because of the racket path, which is traveling not only from down to up, which is the topspin part, but also a little bit from left to right. Um, what your friend is talking about, it, you're absolutely correct, is more so an American twist, which which actually puts the opposite direction of spin on the ball, um, spin that would be more indicative of a lefty slice, uh, which would be um, curving the opposite direction of a righty slice. Um, and so, yes, I agree with you. <laughs> it's more a 7 o'clock to 1 o'clock path. To be able to go directly vertical and go from 6 to 12 or even the opposite direction, from five to eleven, uh, those are that's pretty tough, and that takes a lot of flexibility, um, and that, that's more of a of a twist serve, spinning the ball the opposite direction. So, uh, Jack, hopefully you hopefully you enjoyed my um, explanations of your three questions, and hopefully that's helpful to you. And I look forward to seeing you continue to post on the forums at EssentialTennis.com, and keep up the good work up there in Montreal. I know you're working really hard at your club. Keep up the, the good work, even though uh, it's a volunteer position. You're, uh, you're a good man for promoting our great sport of tennis. And hopefully what you're working on becomes successful and you guys get more players up there and more participation. Take care, Jack, and I'll be talking to you soon. All right, that brings this episode of the Essential Tennis Podcast, episode number 66 to a close. Thank you very much for joining me today on the show. And I hope the topics were of interest to you. And hopefully you learned something today during the show about your own game or tennis in general. And now it's time to give away some tennis stuff. Um, I I started a contest several weeks ago when I released the Essential Tennis uh, t-shirts. We have a really a wide variety of uh, stuff available in the pro shop at EssentialTennis.com. We've got uh, sweatshirts, t-shirts, um, women's tank tops. We have stickers, all kinds of cool stuff. And uh, for everybody who purchased a shirt, um, I put up a, a contest giving away all kinds of stuff, some strings, overgrips, uh, books, and also top prize is going to be a new Wilson K-Pro Tour tennis racket, a brand new Wilson racket that's a great racket. And um, so let's go ahead and, and get down to it. We've got three prizes here. Um, in third place, uh, the third place drawing, third place prize, uh, gets two sets of Wilson Sensation Strain and also a copy, a brand new copy of Mental Tennis by Vic Braden. And the winner of the third place prize is John. John in real life from the forums. Uh, John, congratulations. You win two sets of strain and also a copy of Vic Braden's book. And uh, trust me, nobody could use some mental help like John in real life. Just kidding, John. Just kidding. Uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy the book very much, though. It's helped me a lot in the past, and uh, it's an excellent book. Uh, Next up, 
second place with uh, two sets of Wilson Sensation Strain as well. Also, seven Wilson Pro Overgrips and a copy of Mental Tennis by Vic Braden. Second place drawing goes to Christina, who also goes by BB on the forums. So, uh, BB, excellent job, and I uh, thank you for your purchase of the shirt. And you win a second place prize. I'll get that out to you pretty soon. And lastly, our top prize, which consists of a, a new Wilson K-Pro Tour tennis racket and two sets of Wilson Sensation Strain and a new copy of Mental Tennis by Vic Braden. As you guys can tell, I've got a couple copies of this book laying around. Um, and that, that comes to about $200 in prizes. And the random drawing for first place goes to Steve, who goes by Stevo on the uh, forums. Steve, congratulations. You win the racket and the strain and the book, and I hope that you really enjoy all three. Um, I hope the racket will be a good cho- a good fit for you, and I think it will be. Steve is a 4.0 level player, and uh, this actually should be a very appropriate racket for you, Steve. Um, so I'll get that out to you soon, and, and I hope that you enjoy the prizes. And uh, BB and John in real life, congratulations to you guys as well. Couldn't have gone to a better group of, uh, of posters on the forums. I'm happy that um, hopefully I get to help you guys out as well, uh, as uh, I've appreciated you guys helping me with the, uh, with the shirt, or- shirt orders. Okay, well, that wraps up today's episode of the Essential Tennis Podcast. Thanks again, everybody, for joining me today. And I look forward to talking uh, to all of you again next week on the next episode of the Essential Tennis Podcast. So until then, take care and good luck with your tennis. <laughs>